This is Audible. Audible Originals presents Raz Baraka, The Book of Baraka. Written and performed by Raz Baraka and Jelani Cobb. My name is Jelani Cobb. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor at Columbia University. I first met Raz Baraka more than 30 years ago when we were both young seekers at Howard University. Born the son of poets Amiri and Amina Baraka, Raz grew up in a household in Newark where struggle was a creed, a tradition, a faith in which they were devout practitioners. Over the course of five decades, Newark helped shape Raz Baraka. This is the story of his life and his efforts as mayor to return that favor. I remember one time in college, you know, being young guys, we'd tease with each other, joke with each other, you know, mm. talk about each other's girlfriends, talk about each other's clothes. <laughs> you know, everything yeah, yeah, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we got all this kind of stuff we said. We made a joke about Newark. You were heated for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. I made a note. All right, well, you can't joke with Raz about Newark. <laughs> so, That's real. Talk to me about about what your emotional relationship to the city is. You can describe it. Newark is like a close-knit, I call it a country city, you know what I mean? It's so small but big at the same time, and people know each other's families, and I mean, it's just close-knit in that way, and that we took care of each other, and you know, it's like in your house, you fight with each other, but when somebody try to do something to your family, everybody bands together, and that's always been the history of this town. It's like we've been the underdog. People talk about Newark is mostly negative, and 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 when, and when that happens, people become insular, right? They they begin to depend on one another, and I think that's been Newark's case for a very long time. That we were we were here on our own, and we had to make it on our own. The fact that I'm the first mayor of Newark in about a half a century, who was born and raised here, that tells you something. People like me historically have been locked out of power here in our own home city, and I hope that's changing, and I hope I'm I'm the one that's changing it. I mean, I, like, I'm from Newark for real. I mean, for the good and for the bad. You know, my oldest brother went to jail, my youngest brother was shot in the head, my sister was taken from me by violence here in my community. But I didn't make it here despite growing up in Newark. I made it because I grew up in Newark. I grew up during a time where Newark was the blueprint for black power across the United States. The movement wasn't just about equality, it was about independence. And I watched my parents, Amiri and Amina Baraka, lead that fight. I was a baby growing up in a movement. I didn't go to regular public school like the other kids. I went to African free school. A is for Africa, B is for black, C is for culture, you know? That's how I learned the alphabet. I, I didn't do Dr. Seuss or none of that stuff, brother. We had our own black books with black authors and we didn't learn Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you know what I'm saying? We, it was Cold Black and the Seven Simbas, you know, so, you know what I mean? things like that, you know? Every morning we pledged allegiance to the red, black, and green flag. Red for the blood of our, our, our forefathers, our ancestors, which has not been shed in vain, and black for the color of our skin and the job we have to do, and green for the land. 
which is ours. And today, 40 years later, I sit in an office beside the American flag, red, white, and blue flag, being between both of those flags. It reminds me of the struggle my father always talked about, the struggle for democracy and self-determination. Our right to be treated as Americans, to fight for civil rights and get what every other American has been promised here by the Constitution of this country. And the red, black, and green flag, our ability to determine our own destiny, to identify ourselves the way we see fit, to love who we are and build institutions that represent us and our folks. So the struggle for self-determination is deeply intermingled in our struggle for democracy, which makes the American flag, the red, white, and blue, and the red, black, and green incredibly important. I've got three questions I have to answer for my community. What do we want? What do we need? And how do we get it? I know I can get the answers to these questions because I spent a lifetime trying to get them for myself. Nina Simone stayed in the house for a little while. We made a decision to take over the administration building. The worst race riots since those two years ago in the Watts section of Los Angeles rocked New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five consecutive days a month. What time is it? Patient time. What's going to happen? The land's going to change hands. Now the bricks hold this spirit. And it's boys calling the name. All right, people. I'm going to write something on the board. Let's spell it. First letter. I'm the mayor, you the mayor. When I become mayor, you become mayor, we become mayor. My mother's family is from the Carolinas. My father's family is from North Carolina, and my mother's from South Carolina. They came to Newark during the second wave of the Great Migration, fleeing the Jim Crow South. My grandfather would always make the same joke that they were trying to find New York City and when the conductor said Newark, they got confused and jumped off the train and we've been stuck here since. So they made a life for themselves in Newark, New Jersey and been a part of shaping the city since they arrived. My mother's from a working class community. My father was more uh, from a middle class kind of community. They were society folks. My grandmother and grandfather took jobs as postal worker and social worker. It was a time when if you were a skilled black worker, it was hard to find a job. And if you did, you had to settle for one you were overqualified for. And that still happens today. We know this and we've all lived this. And my father grew up in that. My father was born in Newark in 1934. Everett Leroy Jones was his birth name. My father goes to Howard University, but he doesn't graduate because his courses really didn't interest him. But he finds poetry when he leaves school and he's in the Air Force. He, he is in a, an airman second class on a base in Puerto Rico and takes a second shift as the night librarian. Literature and writing was always hidden inside of him. But he ordered books from Hardy to Kafka, to Gregorian chants, and he gathered together all these military guys to read them in a book club, and he starts writing poetry, even mailing it out from the base. Every last publication rejects him, and eventually 
The army rejects him too. He gets dishonorably discharged and he moves to Greenwich Village where he becomes an artist with a group of folks known as the Beat Poets then or the Beat Movement, all these kind of bohemian poets and writers exploring this post-war culture and politics and cafes and basements, you know, smoking weed and reading Zen poetry. My father would say it best when he said that the Beats were a whole bunch of people, all different nationalities who came to the conclusion that society just sucked. My father was in a bookstore on 8th Street when his friend burst in and, and, and told him that Malcolm X had been murdered. And in, in that moment, everything changed for him. We are nationalists. That is, we are concerned with the building up of our nation, the nation of black people. What the nationalist says is that black people are already a nation, but a nation without political power a people without political self-determination. And this is what we want. He divorced his first wife, who was white, and the mother of his children, Kelly and Lisa. Then he moved to Harlem, and he started with the Black Arts Repertory Theater, and he does all of this in like a month or two. And every single day for the rest of that year, his theater group drives up and down the streets of Harlem in four trucks, one with music, one with paintings, one with drama, and one with poetry. During this time, the FBI is monitoring him because, you know, they see what he is doing as the start of something revolutionary, something that they think would be disruptive. Black art. Poems are bullshit unless they are teeth or trees or lemons piled on a step or black ladies dying of men leaving nickel hearts, beating them down. Fuck poems and they are useful. He would say the noblest function of art is to oppose what is ugly. His art always had purpose. The objective is to seize power, to, to control your destiny, to have self-determination and, and democracy, and we have to fight for that. Towards the end of 1965, he moves back to Newark and uh, you know, finds a three-story house on Sterling Street, paints it red, black, and green, and starts running performances from the basement, and young artists from all across the country begin to flock to the city of Newark. But it's an actress and an activist from Newark that he became attracted to, that, you know, catches his attention. And it, it was my mother whose name was then Sylvia Robinson. She is a very proud woman, uh, very strong, emotional, uh, when I say emotional, not in the way that people think of emotion, right? I think of emotion in terms of power, like that's who she was, very powerful. She wore her, her, her sentiment on her sleeves, on her face, and her actions. She just didn't hold anything back. And no matter where she was, you would know what she was feeling or thinking. She raised our family. You know, a lot of people give credit to my father, but my mother raised our family. Sometimes on her own, because my father was running around the world, reading and organizing and speaking. As black women, 
We have to be the inspiration for the nation, for our men. We have to start out into the community educating the children, educating ourselves. Because once we educate ourselves, the children will become educated because we, we are the ones that teach the children. We are the ones that the children look to as the image. My mother and father decided at that time to Africanize their identity. They call the same Muslim Imam who buried Malcolm X and he gives them their new names, Imamu Amiri Baraka and Amina Baraka. This is the cultural nationalist phase in their lives. Uh, some of my best friends tonight didn't recognize me. <laughs> so I have this new look on my head and on my face. It was a very significant period, not, a, not just in their lives, but in the lives of people in the city. They start to refer to Newark as New Ark, which was its original charter name from the first Christian settlers. But this time around, the settlers are completely different. What's the news? You're listening to Black Newark, Black Opinion from the New Ark. It's biblical in a sense, right? They're looking at as a new beginning, a reformation of, of a city, but also of a country, of a people who are experiencing an opportunity to leave the old way and go to a new way a new arc that people could get on and get to safety. By the late 1960s, Newark was over 60% black, one of the nation's first majority black cities, but still white politicians were in power and the infrastructure in the city was completely controlled by you know, folks who were not in the majority. The government offered low-cost federal mortgage to those who could afford it, which were mostly white people. Those people left the city in mass and moved to the suburbs. They needed a way to commute back into Newark, so they built Highway 280. The problem is they built it right through the wards that housed most of the local black community. They did the same kind of thing all around America, building interstate highways right through black communities to break them up. And in Newark, a 1968 plan to demolish housing in the Central Ward with a new 155-acre medical school paralyzed the black community that lived there. When you're furnished and everything is put on the street and your children put on the street, then what are you going to do? You tell you me. Do you tell oh, me. Oh. And then they have a law against, don't do this, don't do that. Me and my don't, don't, don't my parents my merged their artists with a local group called the United Brothers who organized around electoral politics. Together they started the Committee for Unified Newark to seek solutions for these larger problems. If people get together and try to, try to change that, then it could, probably could be changed. By far, the number one biggest issue in this community at the time was police violence. And the city is forever changed in 1967 after the police beat up taxi driver John Smith. And, and rumors spread around that he was dead and the community rose up in response to that. The worst race riots since those two years ago in the Watts section of Los Angeles rocked New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five consecutive days and nights. At least 24 persons are killed. More than 1,800 wounded, some 1,400 arrested. Turns out he actually had not been killed, but the police response to the public outcry was overwhelming. Two days after its beginning, police are augmented by National Guardsmen. Snipers make the streets a battlefield. Governor Hughes terms the rioting open rebellion, just like wartime. The news at the time was calling it a riot. And I, and I hate that because what, what really was going on was people were uprising or responding to the conditions that were created in, in the city at that time. What other methods are you trying to employ? 
that under, under certain conditions with proper identification, such as armbands, we have a substantial number of clergymen that are willing to go out in the street and talk to the people. My father was driving a friend to a hospital who had been shot. On his way home, my father sees red lights in his rear window, and when the officer approaches his car, he recognizes him. He went to Barringer High School with this guy, and within an instant, the officer beats him, split his head open, and loosens his teeth. When my mother hears the news, she runs to the hospital in her bare feet, and she finds him handcuffed to a wheelchair wearing a, a dashiki that's soaked in blood. When they arrested him, you know, they said something like, we got you down or something like that. After a week of solitary confinement, the jury votes to convict him. The decision is thankfully later overturned, and when he gets out, he's more determined than ever before. What is responsible for this violence, for this rebellion, is the inability of the city government to feel as human beings, the plights of the majority of the people in this city. And that is the cause of this violence. The Newark Rebellion was, it still lingers in the psyche of Newark. It's like a, a incident that you have in your family that people keep discussing over and over again. But at the time, my father makes sure it is a turning point for the movement. His fight is beyond really just art now, and he's focused on bringing black power into electoral politics. I lost my voice. I don't think I'll be able to read this poem, but I was supposed to read it. In Newark, when we greet each other on the street, we say, what time is it? We always say it's nation time. We say, what's going to happen? We say, land is going to change hands. We say, what time is it? Nation time. And what's going to happen? The land's going to change hands. In July 1967, just days after the rebellion, my parents' organization hosts the National Conference on Black Power here in Newark. We are interested in developing in our community the type of peoplehood that, you know, makes black power envelop that entire black community. And they make sure to speak directly to black folks who have traditionally been left out of these conversations. This is the first time that the so-called miseducated Negro has gotten involved in this type of conference. Who is the miseducated Negro? Uh, the Negro who has no understanding of his cultural background and no appreciation for it. Their following grows in about two years, you know, after the Black Power Convention, 2,700 North residents organized to elect Newark's first black mayor, and they picked civil engineer Ken Gibson. When Robert Reed, the man who founded Newark over 300 years ago when he came here. And in 1970, Gibson wins and becomes the first black mayor of a major northeast city. And I'm sure you recognize and he never realized that someday Newark would have souls. 
Gibson becomes just a part of a small wave of black mayors being elected all over the country in major United States cities. Carl Stokes in Cleveland, Richard Hatcher in Gary, and in 1972, Hatcher in Gary, Indiana, with the help of my father and the Committee for Unified Newark, coordinate the very first black political convention right there in Gary. And elected officials took the podium to strategize how to create a completely separate black political party, but also create a black agenda and a national assembly. About 10,000 people came out to that convention and you know, everybody was there from Harry Belafonte to Jesse Jackson. The African diaspora has trumpeted its summons to all of the tribes with a question put forth by Brother Baraka Jackson had the entire crowd chanting the words that were birthed right here in the city of Newark. Brothers and sisters, what time is it? It's nation time. It's nation time for all of the tribes from Boston to Birmingham, Mississippi to Minnesota, San Diego to Seattle and Galveston to Gary. What time is it? And, you know, I was only two years old at the time that all this was happening, that the convention was going on. And what we don't look at a lot is all of those children that grew up in all of that turmoil and push and fight and struggle, how it impacted them to finish it, the unfinished struggle for democracy in this country, that we have to be a part of that, right? That, that I have to be a part of that. The household that I grew up under was just extraordinary. It was different. We would be playing football in front of the house, and we would come home in the evenings, like 150 people, 200 people in the house, singers from all over the world, playwriting, poetry, and activists in the same space. Revolutionaries would get up and give diatribes in the middle of a party. I mean, they would be there all hours of the night, all out into the street cars, double park all up and down 10th Street. My mother would make black beans and rice and cornbread, and we'd be sitting there on the steps eating, just staring at all of this stuff that was going on. It was amazing. I heard people read poetry in different languages, and people would come down there and read poetry in our basement and play jazz and music and blues. Nina Simone stayed in our house for a little while and went on a summer vacation with us to the Hamptons. She would come downstairs early in the morning and get on that piano in my living room and play that piano, and we would wake up like, what is this crazy lady doing downstairs? Like banging on the piano, and singing. I just thought she was strange as a child. When you first hear it on the record, you're like, yo, that's that lady that was in our house. It's crazy. The same melodic sound, the, the sound that, you know, you can't, nobody else can, can imitate that sound, man. If you hear it, you know who it is. It's like, bam, that's Nina Simone. Of every man who put me here. But even while my household felt like this kind of bastion of hope, uh, of change, it also made us a target. We had security in my basement, you know, so... <laughs> we had real security in the basement. Like they, they were there overnight. We needed security because our house would be broken into. They don't. Nobody steals anything. They just destroy the house. I, I uh, 
You know, watch my father beat by the police. Watch my mother beat by the police. My mother to this day, <laughs> really, 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 you know, when she refers to that period of her life, she gets upset sometimes because it was so it was so difficult in the things that they were doing. But hosting people in our home was almost a, a celebration of of those people who resisted, the people who we thought had our backs. It's not like the local PTA meeting. It gives you a love for community that, you know, you just can't get anywhere else. And my relationship to that community was about to change. You're educated in the struggle and the movement, and also as a kind of an extension of your formal education. You go to African free schools. What were your early experiences like in school? It was, uh, you know, the, the idea was create an environment where we saw ourselves winning and not being subjugated or losing or at the bottom. We live in a city of New York. What city do we live in? New York. What city do we live in? New York. That's right, New York. Nation time. The mayor is the chief administrator of New York. Who is the chief administrator of New York? The mayor. All of these schools that existed then, Watoto Shule, Ujima Shule, it's kids that came up into that in that environment and stayed in those schools in, in, in perpetuity. How many people are there on the city council? Nine. How many people? Nine. 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 But my family, their ideas and concepts were changing. Just this idea that we just needed to return to the source or just be, you know, culturally uh, look like we're from Africa and speak African languages and learn about our history it wasn't enough. The people select the city council. Who select the city council? The people. The people that live in New York. So they moved us out of that and put us into the regular public school system because they began to think that they had to change the system, change and make it more democratic, and they had to struggle and fight to do those things and not just separate themselves from it, right? That, that self-determination, people had the right to do that, but we also had to fight for democracy and have the same things that everybody else have. He, my father and mother felt like, heck, we paying for public school anyway. Our kids are gonna get a decent education down the street from where they live at, right? And, and uh, you know, they thought that that was important. When I finally went to like regular public school, like traditional public school, it was it was really, really hard. You know, people talking about Christmas and Santa Claus and, and in your household, Santa Claus ain't real. You know, it was difficult. I didn't celebrate Christmas. You know, we barely got we barely had birthday parties. We we didn't do what everybody else did. My father had kids from a previous marriage and so did my mother. So it was always a lot of us. Five children that my mother and father had together. Obalaji was the oldest, Obalaji Malik Ali. Me, I'm right after that. Shani, Isis Makeda, who's no longer with us, at least physically. And Amiri is after that. Seku, Musa, and Ahi, the youngest, Mwenge, Baraka. And then my name was Raj Jua Alaziz Baraka. And everybody else had regular names, you know. They were Marvin and, and John and Jason, and they had a, a good Christian name, right? <laughs> and people thought I was, like, from another country, and I was from Tim Street and Clinton Avenue. Uh, you know, when I got to high school, you know, I tried to do everything that everybody else was doing. You know, two-finger rings, and 
a chain on my neck and I tried to buy the stuff. My mother would harass me about, you know, not getting this and not getting that. I tried to, and the first opportunity I got to get my own money and do things like that, I tried to look like uh, a B Street movie, brother. <laughs> I idolized Run DMC, you know, as a kid. Me and a, and a friend of mine, Quadir Camillo, in, in high school, we would, uh, like, pretend to be Run DMC in the hallway. Like, we would do the dances, and and I would write plays and, and have the kids in my in, in my neighborhood be in breakdancing plays in my basement. We all thought we could breakdance, pop lock, all of those things. Hip-hop was a, was a place to go for refuge. You know, of all the crazy stuff that was going on, it was fun and it told our stories. And so we just fell in love with that. And uh, it was a good place to hide. People were hiding from poverty, hiding from issues in their family, hiding from things that were going on in their community. And so they put it in a rhyme. People start rhyming about it. And you battling rhyme and they was battling dancing and breakdancing, walking around with linoleum and big radios. But um, I absolutely am acutely aware when crack hit our neighborhoods. The war on drugs sent our community into a free fall. It was uh, that whole fun, happy kind of atmosphere changed very rapidly, very rapidly. Everything changed very rapidly. Kids that you grew up with, that you knew, were now completely different, man. And they, they were wearing all of these different clothes, the $100 sneakers and gold chains. I mean, it was, it was different. Like, it was different. People were making money off of this crack. And you would begin to see people in the community, in the street, walking up and down like zombies, right? And it's, it just had a different... It broke whole neighborhoods up. People you knew as children were now involved in, 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 in the drug world. And you see that, and you're like, wow, you know, I know this kid. Because nobody is born as a child saying they're going to sell drugs. I'm going to be a heroin dealer. I'm going to be a crack dealer at 12, at 11, at 10, you know, running around, you know, uh, getting into mischief, ringing people's bells and running. That was our fun for the day. That was the mission we would do. Ring people's bells and run down the street, you know? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, and see them now turning into, like, drug dealers. On 14th and Avon, in front of Yousef Steak and Take, young boys that looked like me, my friends, some of them was out there hustling, some of them was out there dealing, doing what they was doing, and further down was the pool hall. I would make my way past the pool hall, past 14th and Avon, and find solace up the street on the, the abandoned church steps of you know 17th Street and Avon, and I would write poetry up there, sometimes read it to myself. The dichotomy of my world made me feel like I needed to write poetry to get it down so I wasn't feel like I was crazy or insane. And I used to hide my poetry in my back pocket and just really try to fit in with everybody else. You know, kids have dreams and 
Their dreams are just like everybody else's dreams. First, when you're a baby, you want to be Superman, and then you dream that you, you want to have big houses and travel and take care of your family and yourself and have money, and you don't want to be poor, especially in a time when crack and money and all that was so prevalent in our community. People were getting new cars and sneakers and jeans and clothes. And, you know, they were able to have dignity, and unfortunately, it led a lot of people to jail and death. The majority of kids are not in that, but it takes up the imagination of the entire city. And we have to imagine something different, have to have a radical imagination to think about a place that's different than the one you've been forced to be in. And an enormous sense of love. You know, I think that African-Americans in this country have a greater sense of love than many people. I, I really believe that because how can you still believe in this country, believe in God, and believe in these people, and fight for everybody after all of the stuff you've been through and seen, to still have faith that this thing works and that God is real. That's a Moses love, right? To, to step in the ocean knowing that it would part. My guidance counselor, Rosita Holiday, signed a bunch of students up for a visit to Howard University, but then I wasn't interested. And, uh, you know, I thought I was smart. So you said, I don't have a permission slip. So I can't go if I don't have a permission slip. You know what I'm saying? So she marched me right, my little smart ass self, right into the office and got on the phone to call my father and said, we're going on a trip to Howard University. Does he have permission? He said, yes. And said, there go your permission. Let's go. I was upset all the way down there. <laughs> until we got to the university and I saw those black people on that campus, man. I was like, wow. It was the most amazing thing I ever seen, brother. It was people from like the Caribbean and cities I've never even heard of, you know? And they were studying biology and, and mathematics and English and communications. And I said, you know what? I'm going here. Like, that's it. <laughs> like I was gonna force my way into the school. But I wanted to go to Howard so bad that that's the only application I filled out. So when it happened, man, holy smoke, man, I was so excited and happy and elated that that was going down. I really was. When I went to college, one of my best friends was on his way to jail the same day. I mean, for drugs, you know? And I, I, you know, I was on my way to Howard University. Uh, he was catching public transportation to go to turn himself in. And I was getting on the road. You know, so it was my responsibility to make sure more of us went to college and not jail. Do you have an early poem that you could read now? Let me, I probably do, man. Let me. This is one of the first poems I wrote. It's called Ghetto Tales. You heard the stories about the boy who dreamed of being a millionaire and living in style while his mama stayed on her knees, hoping God would let him live a little while. Built up his clientele until he got strong in the game. Lost his way at 13, started dealing cocaine. Forgot about his future until it finally came. His beginning was his end, chasing that same spot. His death was foreshadowed two nights ago, so now he avoids that spot. Where the force of the bullets pushed his cousin against the tree and him to one knee, 
and there's a small crevice in the sidewalk where the blood wouldn't wash away. Running from the voices, then whispers that turn hateful, too confusing to know what they say. Too many nightmares, no direction, and afraid of losing his fame. Trapped inside a ghetto tale, trying desperately to change. But in reality, it seems like things always stay the same. And he thought it was the weed that was keeping him sane. He tried to stay awake, cause he kept dreaming about flames. Now he was up to four blunts a day and three bottles of gin. Death in his thoughts until his mind would spin. He wanted to go out blazing, shooting against the wind, with dark blue tears and a peaceful grin. He tried to go the distance until the penitentiary became his hope. A five to ten bid replaced his suicide notes. Hanging from the loose threads at the end of his own rope. Hey, you know the stories about the boy who never embraced his pain, whose memory is the two blocks from that tree spot in the form of a blood stain, who dreamed of making millions but instead died in the rain. Yeah, who dreamed about making millions but instead died face down in the rain. Now the bricks hold his spirit and his boys call his name in the streets scared and paranoid, knowing their fates is just the same. I thought Howard would be a haven, and in many ways it was. But I didn't know then I was in for a serious fight. I'm going to try something just to see if this works. I don't know if the, the technical part of this is going to work. I'll give you $5 if you can name this song. <laughs> of course. I knew that before it even started. <laughs> That's Boogie Down Productions, brother, South Bronx. Nice. Yo, what's up? Brother. Woo, those was the days. South Bronx. South Newark, South, South Newark. That's what we used to say. <laughs> the South Ward. <laughs> South Ward. South, South Ward. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right, so I want to take you back there. This is all 1986, 1987. Dean Keen, who was the dean of housing back then and who I'm still in touch with, you know, sometimes every now and then, he said that in his many years of working at Howard, the class that came in in 1986 was by far the worst class of students he had ever encountered. Oh, my God. The class that came in that year. Oh, man. And um, I don't know. Do you have any insights on why he might have thought that? I have no idea, by the way. <laughs> I don't think any of it is legally prosecutable anymore. <laughs> my GPA was so terrible. I was on academic probation. Father and mother are gonna kill me if I have to go home. Critics charge the kind of racist politics begun with Horton ended up with Republicans in Louisiana electing David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. The police breach one door, but they can't get through the second door because the football players are making a barricade with their body. Every day that we are silent, we have collaborated in the world's demise.
I took the train from Newark to Howard. I took all of my belongings with me on the train. And, you know, it was, had a big giant bag of clothes and God knows what else in a bag all, all at my feet, trying to figure out what was going to happen when I got off this train to get to this university, you know. I ended up in Drew Hall on the couch waiting for a room assignment, had an open assignment. So I sat there on that couch for hours, watching people go past me, getting their rooms, totally exhausted. Brother, if it was Rutgers University, Newark, I would've went home by then. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, so I camped out there, actually fell asleep on that couch, man. And I, I didn't know what to expect, what was going on. I didn't know anybody. My family weren't there. I, I didn't have a lot of money in my pocket, no bank account, you know what I'm saying? So I, had to, I was basically at the whim of whatever happened down there at the time. You know, all it was only freshmen there when I got there. And I didn't know that at first because it was just so many people. I thought that was the whole school until the whole school came back. <laughs> the 1980s was an incredible time to be at Howard University. We were the generation that came of age during the civil rights movement. The campus had this electric, Afrocentric energy and this kind of internationalism that I hadn't really seen up close. The times were changing and we were changing with them and we, we were all finding our voices and it, it was like just a beautiful time. Ronald Reagan had just finished two terms as president. He won the White House by attacking affirmative action, condemning welfare, demonizing, busing. His administration put Nelson Mandela on the terrorist watch list. The conservative agenda felt like an extinction-level threat to us. We couldn't just wait for us to be hit by a huge rock or something. We had to respond, uh, and a lot of students did. Most days you would see lines of students protesting around apartheid in, in South Africa, and, and, and many of us were just watching all of this from our classrooms, but we wouldn't be on the sidelines for that much longer. When I got to Howard, my classmates and teachers knew who my father was, and so people expected me to do more in class. They expected me to know specific things, and that felt kind of heavy to me. You know, it was a huge burden that I carried because really I just wanted to be regular. And so I started my freshman year by deciding to focus on just having fun. And that was basically my major, you know, entertaining myself, trying to have a good time. The Philly kids hung with each other. They called themselves Osage. The New York kids would all be all together. We, we fit somewhere in the middle of all of that in New Jersey, and I ran right with the, the whole city group. Uh, I was right in the middle of that, yeah. I was thinking about communications. I was thinking about history. I was thinking about a lot of stuff. I remember my counselor said to me, listen, you're taking a whole lot of classes all over the place. And at some point, you're going to have to declare a major or you're spending your money for nothing here. And then at the end of my freshman year, my GPA was so terrible, I was on academic probation, you know. And when I got that letter, I was like, my father and mother are going to kill me if I have to go home. Like, you know, it'd be a news story or something. So I, I had to buckle up, man, declare a major, push, and do what I needed to do. 
One thing about the professors at Howard, you could tell they wanted you to win. I met Ron Walters probably around my sophomore year at Howard. To me, Ron was like a political guru, genius. Ron Walters was actually Jesse Jackson's first campaign manager, in fact. And I took his class, Intro to Black Politics and Pan-Africanism. He could teach the class without referring to books, without doing whatever, he could just go on. And he would always say the same thing, your voice doesn't matter unless it's in the conversation. It made me feel responsible for the information that I was refusing to learn, you know, just wanting to be regular, right? And it kind of forced me, even with my GPA the way it was, the information that I was getting, it's like, listen, there's something almost calling you to do what you're supposed to be doing, and you have to step up to the plate. And I, and I thought that that was even why I was not doing well, you know, because I was running from almost destiny. I met this guy, he was passing out literature, saying, yo, we having this meeting. And so I went to it just to hear what they were talking about. It was a group called Black United Youth. And they were reading uh, Capitalism and Slavery and all these books like that. And the topics they were talking about just resonated with me because I heard this stuff somewhere before, right? And, uh, you know, so I, I started you know, listening and participating. They had a, like a silent protest one day that me and a, and, a, and a friend of mine, Travis Harrell, he came with me and, and Kevin Baxter. They they came with me and they participated in that. And, uh, you know, I was really trying to get them to get more of the folks that I ran around with to be a part of that, but they weren't interested in it, you know, because, you know, people feel like those guys, they don't read anything, they're not a part of anything, they're not gonna do anything, but, you know, cause disruption, I guess. It felt to me like they didn't want them in it. So I thought the best thing to do was to uh, create an opportunity where we could have our own thing, where we all get together and uh, do something differently. So we had a meeting where I invited like everybody, friend and foe, right? From various groups of people that hung out with one another who I thought had influence on the campus, like people copied off the way we danced, the way we dressed, they used the slang that we used, everything. So I just thought that these folks could have impact. And so we invited everybody, we squeezed into a dormitory, we, we had a meeting in there, we talked about doing some stuff. You know, we were talking very regular. I mean, they came in the meeting with 40 ounces of beer and all kind of stuff, so it was a real live meeting, brother. <laughs> Of, of, of young cats from young 17, 18 year old boys for the most part trying to figure out how to be men, trying to figure out how to be impactful so people don't write us off. We played around with the name and we were actually gonna be called the Sons of Panthers or something like that, right? We were, we were in there debating and, and it clicked. Nia, Nia. We put together Nia. Nia is a, one of the principles of the Nguza Saba, which means purpose. and forced freedom organization for racial and cultural enlightenment, force. And behind that was the law of inertia, which states that a body at rest remains at rest until acted upon 
by some force. And we thought we were going to be that force to move the people at Howard University into action, move a community into action, bring the community and the students together, all of those things that we thought were pervasive and detrimental to the university. We were going to try to push. And we made a decree that we would study our history, ourselves, the world, and we would do that on Fridays at 6 o'clock because Friday was the day we usually picked out which party we was going to go to and act the fool. So we decided instead of doing that, we would get together and study. A young lady happened to come there as well. I don't know how she found out about it, but she came and sat in the front. Her name was April Silva. She became the executive minister of the organization. And it dawned on me that, like, when we did this, that somebody actually had to be in charge of it. And um, I tried my best not to be that person, but it was, like, inevitable. And at that point, it was the first time that I actually, people depended on me to, I guess, guide them somewhere. 1989 was like the peak of our activism at Howard. I mean, the Board of Trustees, under the leadership of James Cheek, went and sought out Lee Atwater, who was the chair of the RNC, to put him on the Board of Trustees. In 1988, Lee Atwater was the campaign strategist for George H.W. Bush's presidential race. Atwater played blues guitar to soften his image. But his real talent was race baiting, was kind of red meat politics. Atwater masterminded the Bush campaign's racist ad about Willie Horton, a black convict who committed horrible crimes while on furlough from prison. And the ad was really about black stereotypes and white fear. It was shameless. Today, Atwater denied the issue was race-based. So our whole uh, issue in, in with regards to this was the criminal furlough program that we thought was wrong. I still think it's wrong. And I but critics charge the kind of racist politics begun with Horton ended up with Republicans in Louisiana electing David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. And when we heard about all of this as students, we were in an uproar. There was even rumors that he was going to teach classes in political science. And our teachers weren't any better, right? We would go to their class and uh, they would talk about that, you know, and say, oh, you know, Lee Atwater is going to be on the board of trustees and so forth and so on, almost fanning the flames. And it was like, we had to do something about this. Like, we cannot be here talking all of this talk, going through this stuff, studying all of this, and we just allow this man to waltz in on our historically black university. So we began meeting about that specifically and organizing and having larger meetings with other campus organizations and other people about a strategy. And the first thing that was decided was that we would interrupt the annual convocation ceremony that happens at Crampton Auditorium. And so we finally came up with like a two-pronged strategy. The people who wanted to did like a little protest outside. They marched in a circle. Then there was a few people who were going to go into the little vestibule area and just sit there and, you know, sing and talk and say, we don't want Atwater. That was the extent of what was supposed to happen on that day. But fate would have it that other things took place. Dr. Myers, I'm 
Eric, it's been an extraordinary day here at Crampton Auditorium where the ceremonies were literally disrupted, disrupted rather, by students who took over um, the, uh, the ceremony, took center stage, in fact. I get up on the stage and it's hundreds of students in the, in the audience who now are up yelling. The kids that were outside came inside, took over the stage, were all in the front. They were yelling and screaming and chanting and, you know, it was like uh, a movement had begun. They have just told me that they think this is a joke, that this is a plaything. I say, we don't leave here at all until they come. I get behind the podium. I'm faced with a theater packed with hundreds of students waiting to hear what to do next. Go get your books and study. We ain't going nowhere, huh? We're going to be here all night. All night. All night. I realize that I'm one of the people that are really leading this fight. Should we have a man that's going to stop you from being educated on your board of trustees? They always told me a mind was a terrible thing to win. The place is filled with people yelling and screaming in support of, of what we were doing. We thought that it was a small group of us, but there's really hundreds of us who were trying to make sure we made things change at Howard. And, and I was excited about that, and I thought everything that we, we wanted, that we were going to get. We leave the auditorium to gather at the flagpole out front. We take down the American flag, replace it with the red, black, and green flag, and then April confronted President Cheek later on that day at a dinner they had in Blackburn, and that's when he basically was like, no, he's not going to do anything basically dismissing her and telling the press that we don't even know who Lee Atwater is, which really is an indictment on the school because what kind of education were we getting, college students, and we don't know who Lee Atwater is, uh, who was then the chair of the Republican National Committee. And we should know if we did not know, which coincides to why I believe the red, black, and green is an expectation, symbolically meaning that we should know about the things that affect our people, our community, and... If he thinks that, then we're in bad shape. And so we had to go to plan B. The idea was to begin to meet at Blackburn, begin to meet at the flagpole, and those things would lead us to, towards the administration building that we ultimately began to take over. And we wind up being in there for four days. The local radio hosts reports on our every move, and as a result, people bring us supplies. They bring us half loaves of bread, peanut butter and jelly, and cold cuts. They give us blankets and flashlights. And the leaders that I look up to are all of a sudden looking us up. And some of our professors took the stage early on in support of the protest. One-tenth of this nation is being heard today on this campus. And I salute you, I salute you, I salute you. Hallelujah, 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 I salute you, hallelujah. I'm moving so quickly that I barely feel the fear when it hits. Things became very serious. I was outside of the administration building and uh, again to see police getting into helicopters across the street and being dropped on the roof of the administration building. And at that moment, our protest got very real. 
and it became serious. And there were fears, fears that other people would get hurt, that, you know, that this would turn ugly fast. And, you know, that these people weren't playing, that they were willing to hurt us. On day four, the police are pushing through the doors with more force. The football team is on our side of the doors trying to hold them shut against police who are trying to get in using a battering ram. The ram is hitting the doors, but the football players keep holding them shut. They're like a defensive line. Then the police breach one door, but they can't get through the second because the football players were actually barricading the door with their bodies. The police start dropping down through the roof from helicopters. Uh, and this went on, probably felt like a zillion hours, but it probably was like a good 30 minutes, you know, maybe less, like 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then the D.C. mayor at the time, Marion Barry, intervenes and makes the cops leave. And a brother named Cody Coleman, he's on the phone. He was a part of our leadership team. He, he gets off the phone and he makes an announcement in, in the administration building. He says, we've just learned that the administration is now taking steps to put Lee Atwater off of the board of trustees. And everybody just started hollering and screaming. That was like victory. We are not opposed to this man because he's Republican. We are not interested in Republicans nor Democrats. Historically, they haven't been for us, so why should we be for them? It was interesting about, uh, I remember thinking you were a very intense person around then. Uh, you were standing somewhere looking off into space and somebody said, what's wrong with you? And you said, the white man is still in charge. <laughs> that, and that, that was from the password that we had in the administration building. Like in order for you to pass through the building, you had to knock on the door. They made Jesse Jackson say that. And he tried to get through the building. He knocking on the door. We yelling, it's Jesse Jackson. They're like, what's the password? And I had to whisper to him the password. He had to say the white man is still in charge. That was, you know, wow. They tried to deregister me after the protest. It made me understand how real this was, how dangerous it could be. And so I had to go to all of my teachers because you have to get this validation card. I had to get all of my teachers to sign saying that not only was I in class, that I, that I did well and all this other stuff. And all of the teachers, every last professor I had were probably stood up in the court and said something because not only was I engaged, I was active in class too. That actually was my best academic year. I, you know, I knew what I was studying, why I was studying, what I wanted to do. It wasn't a game anymore. We actually were fighting something real and concrete. We were actually getting hit back. We wound up running for office right after that. We ran for myself and April Silva, ran for president and vice president of Howard University Student Association. We won. April became the president, I became the vice president. During the protests, with the spotlight on me, people saw me as radical. And, and I get it, when you're holding a megaphone and occupying a building, you're gonna look a little radical to some folks, but I never really saw myself that way. I, I didn't think of myself as, as radical in the way people thought it was. I thought I was a reasonable person, someone 
uh, actually had to get to the root of the problems that were going on, and this was the way to get it done. But the spotlight simultaneously revealed this kind of intimate side of me as well. I began to read more poetry to larger crowds and, and began to travel around the country doing that. Prior to that, I didn't have a lot of places to read it. So it was actually a very personal relationship I had with poetry and a very private one before I entered Howard University. And when I shared my poetry, I realized that it had a deep impact on people. People my age needed to be heard. There was an unfinished struggle that happened in America and we really thought that we were going to finish that struggle for everyone. We would go around at that time reading poetry to universities around the country. Myself, Kevin Powell, Willie Perdomo, Tony Medina, Asha Bandeli. Kevin pitched that we would publish our work in a book of poetry, so we did. And we titled it Inner Tradition after my father's poem of the same name. But honestly, the first time I read one of my poems before a big crowd, I was scared half to death. You, you get the jitters in your stomach, your hands get sweaty, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I still get nervous. People ask me today, like, do you get nervous when you speak? Absolutely, it's human. I get nervous all the time. Sometimes more nervous than others, but you still get, you still, it still happens. I've been an introvert since I was a child, man. You know, from sitting on those church steps by myself writing poetry. I don't speak a lot in smaller circles. I'm usually quiet when I go in, in, into like parties or different events. I don't interact as as often as I probably should. All of those things, because you know I'm always in a constant state of thought. Sometimes it can appear that I'm being rude or uh, aloof, uh, and, and and it's really I'm just I'm, I might be a little uncomfortable, right? And and uh, I'm I'm more comfortable, you know, in my office listening to music. Or or, or, or or writing or doing whatever in my own space as opposed to in a crowd of people. And I think the positions that I found myself in, the situations that, I, that I've been in have forced me to be more external and outward, you know, now. And, and these problems that we have in the city, I am clear in terms of, you know, what my leadership style is that I can't fix none of this stuff by myself. And I, I tell all of the, every, when we have our meetings, I say, listen, I don't arrest a single person. I don't fix water lines. I haven't mowed anybody's lawn. I haven't cleaned up trash except volunteering with things. I don't clean up the snow. I don't, you know, any of these things. I'm not teaching people in the class anymore. This is jobs that all of you guys do, right? But I need you to do it to the level that I want it to happen at. And I have to create an environment where people want to do those things, right? A lot of people want the they want the position, they just don't want the job. Like all of the trappings, the 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 long hours, the loneliness, the 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 fight that it takes, all of this stuff. This is not an easy, thankful kind of job. So when, when you get in this position, you have to want to do it. Uh, you have to want to do this job, and you have to know where you want to go with it. My senior year at Howard, my first daughter was born. Her mother and I were young, very young, and uh, I was like intensely involved in in uh, the, the movement politics. She was more of artist, and I and and Amandla came because of our 
involvement in the anti-apartheid struggle and all that stuff that was going on. And the mandala comes from that, you know, freedom, victory. Amandla, they would yell, way too. Now, I became probably very, af very afraid, more than anything, of, of where I was going and what, what was happening. I decided to move back to Newark, you know, it was home, and it felt safe. And safety was what I, was what I needed. And because now that I was a parent, the love I felt for my child, Amandla, made the stakes feel that much higher. And there are a lot of kids that I know who grew up in activist households who either don't like the movement at all or, or you know, have, you know, bad experiences because there's so much sacrifice that happens, and like you're under constant attack. My family was under attack, I mean, physical attack. It's difficult to raise children in an environment like that. This is a poem I wrote right before I got out of college. It's called No More Liberation Song. There are no more liberation songs, no freedom literature, no group theater or resistance. They want you to go along, make the best of things until you're watching, then spying on your friends, telling on your family. Just go along and your babies curse your name, dying in playgrounds with no swings and rusted sliding boards. I will not play their music or sing their songs. I will not read my children their nursery rhymes. I will not perform for them. Every day that we are silent, we have collaborated in the world's demise. Just go along, make the best of things. Make the most of what you got, do more with less when they have it all. Go along, you're the reason people don't have. Blame yourself, beg for forgiveness, repent, bow down even further than you already are. Be accommodating, look the other way until you can't see it all. Then become a liar, learn war, soon murder. Live at other people's expense. It's the welfare cheats, the crippled and lame, the old people, young people, teenage mothers, poor farmers, public schools and parents, anybody but them, anybody but them, niggers and spicks and kikes and dagos and Polacks and guineas. There are no more liberation songs, no more freedom literature, no more group theater, no more resistance, just praises for capitalism and everyone seems to be playing their part. I always thought I would end up back home. I still want to write poetry. I still want to be an activist. I still want to do all of these things. I've learned that love is the most important thing to maintain in revolution. You are finished with school. You're a young father. You've had these experiences. You kind of know what you want to do, but not quite sure exactly how to do it. And so for a lot of people, you know, that's a time period where they go off and explore the world. What I remember about you was you being very clear, laser clear that you wanted to go back to Newark. Why was that? That's where I was supposed to be. And from the very beginning, even in my, you know, lack of clarity, uh, I thought that I needed to go back to 
needed to go back to Newark, come home. And whatever it is I learned or realized at Howard that I had to use all of my skill and whatever I had to come home and do something for guys who was on the bus to, to Annadale while I was taking uh, the train to college, right, to, to fix that dichotomy, to change that. Hmm. What's interesting, you know, me, you, Cherie, Lou, a whole array of people from Black Neoforce went into education. Do you have any idea why that was? Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. I worked as an educator for over 20 years before I became the mayor. And almost that entire time I was running for office. 16 years straight, I ran for office. And I lost every single time. And my students literally grew up watching me lose. But you know what? It couldn't have been that discouraging because, in fact, I had a fifth grader named LaMonica McGyver who helped me on my campaigns. And then she grew up and ran for city council. And I remember the year uh, she ran, I was running too for mayor, and we both won. Lauren calls me and is like, I need a, a teacher for this part I'm doing right now. So I said, right now? She said, yeah, right now. I'm doing it right now in my house. As history has shown in newer collections, it is often the person with the best ground game who wins. Every time I got on my knees, my mama showed up. I mean, more than anything, I learned that I wasn't as popular as I thought I would. And I was like, wow, if I'm the mayor, you the mayor. When I become mayor, you become mayor. We become mayor. When I came back home, I, I started writing for the Source magazine. I was getting like $100 an article. You know, I was like making nothing. So, you know, I, I became a substitute teacher because I said, you know, this is what I, I need to get back and help these kids. I didn't even own a suit, man. So I used to be in class with Timberlands and Lee jeans, you know what I mean? And maybe a button-up shirt, you know what I'm saying? I didn't have an education degree, so I had to do what they call an alternate route. In an alternate route, you have to take these specific classes that try to teach you pedagogy, but they did very little of that. They mostly taught, taught you school law and school policy and all these other kind of things and basic information and not real deep pedagogy, especially how to teach black and brown kids in the middle of th these communities that were under such devastation. People look at kids and, you know, they have problems in school. But those problems stem, stem from their community, their home. I mean, people come, they don't have food, they don't have clean clothes. The light bill is not paid. You know, police raided somebody's home. All of those things come into the classroom. It's impossible to keep that stuff out of the classroom. And you wound up having to deal with those issues to be able to teach kids and do what you were supposed to do. So it's almost, it's almost that you have to get engaged at another thing to help these kids get ready or prepare them for what you're trying to give them. At least that's what I thought. And I don't think that's, that's taught anywhere. I did all my work on the weekends or after school. During the day, I was just all throughout the building. I ate on every lunch period. Every lunch period the kids had, I was in there playing chess, talking to people, sitting at tables. And so what happens in education, you get all these the black men to be in charge because we become like these glorified security guards that they believe can handle the situation if things get rough. You just need a black man in there. And that's really not true. 
funny how money changes situation. Lauren Hill was friends with Sister Soldier, and one day we met at Sylvia's restaurant in Harlem. We became good friends, and uh, you know, this is before that those albums, you know, went meteoric. When we became friends, I, I began to really understand how deeply she was involved in her artwork. I'm gonna write something on the board. Let's spell it. First letter. L. One day I finished coaching basketball practice and gave a couple of my students a ride home. What's that? What? So I had a car with uh, two kids in it, Phil Valdez and Gabriel Salcedo. They was in my car, I'm driving them home. Lauren calls me and is like, uh, I need a, a teacher for this part I'm doing right now. So I said, right now? She's like, yeah, right now. I'm doing it right now at my house. Okay, how many people in here have ever been in love? I said, okay. So I told Phil and Gabrielle, I said, look, I got to make a stop to do this thing. We don't get in love, right? Oh, let this black man right here tell what his idea of love is. I go in there not knowing what to expect. She has a, a living room full of children. About your personal definition, don't tell me what Webster thinks. She's like, we've been trying to do this skit over and over and it's just not working out. Can you do it? I said, well, what is it about? She said, it's love. Talk about a fancy car, you be right on point. But we want to talk about love. You can do it. What do you think? You said you love somebody. You should know why you love them, right? And uh, Phil and Gabrielle, if you listen to them, when they do the roll call, you're gonna hit, you hear them say their names. So they're forever marked in the history of Lauryn Hill's uh, uh, album because they uh, was the last two to be dropped off after the basketball practice. <laughs> I remember an incident at school. A young man went home and his father was beating his mother. And my school was right next to the police station. So he runs all the way down the street past the police station. He don't go in the police station. He runs past the police station into the school to my office to come tell me, right? So we have to go around there. I have to get the police. We have to go around there together. And, you know, to me it's instructive because it tells me that the, the, the young man, safety to him was the school, not the precinct. And, and for him to do that means that he, he trusted me but also expected me to do something. Let's hear it from Brother Rats. Go out. Again, welcome to Black Name Force meeting. The reason we salute each other is out of respect for one another. I start a local chapter of Black Name Force in Newark. We hold our meetings in my parents' basement. And here I am leading my own group of basement revolutionaries. Nice topic is Brown versus Board of Education 40 years later. I think it's a timely discussion because Negroes are beginning to lose the things that they benefited from in the 60s and the 70s. It's 1994, only five years after the Howard protests. We may have won that fight, but conservative power was growing fast. They're asking for neighborhood schools in these suburban districts where in these other school districts where blacks and Latinos are being bused. They don't want them there, so they're asking for neighborhood schools. 
And neighborhood schools means segregation. It means segregation. That's what it means. And not only do we need busing, we need to have a right to have our own schools as well. Right? Why well, we need a right to have our own schools? Because we have been oppressed as a national uh, people, as a nation. And so we need self-defense as a nation. And our schools are self-defense. But one thing we have to be careful of is to make sure that these schools are not private. Conservatives started visiting Newark to appeal to black voters. Their pitch to us was that their private sector was the key to solving inner city problems. Now I can see how that pitch could tip some people, uh, given the conditions that we were living in. And you know, I, my private education at African Free School was pivotal for me, but I knew it wasn't the entire answer. Even if we have Ujamashule and Uhuru, Sasa and Chad and all of these schools that are private, that means tuition, that means other things, the majority of our kids again cannot go because they live in the inner cities where they will remain in a poor system that is isolated. And if we allow this concept of neighborhood schools and we allow privatization of schools, that means that that takes the onus off of government. It takes the onus off. It doesn't allow you to have any redress. You can't say this is wrong. They can put you the hell out. It was almost like a dare. You know, those guys was like, uh, you, you talking all this junk, you ain't gonna run for mayor. And so I jumped in. And, and in my mind, I don't know if I thought I was gonna win. It was more of the being in a fight that mattered, right? And Ron Walter's voice in my head, like, your voice doesn't matter unless it's in the conversation. Because if everybody else is describing your ideas to other people, they obviously are not doing it in the way that's beneficial to you. And you have to do that, and the only way you could do that is get on the stage. I had to be in a debate. I had to face these people face to face and argue ideas with them. We took our campaign slogan from the early days of, of the movement in Newark. Uh, we used to say, what's gonna happen? They would say, the land is gonna change hands. So we, we took our campaign slogan from that. We say, what's gonna happen? That's was the greeting, what's gonna happen? Say, the land's gonna, gonna change, change hands. hands. That's what we used to say. I ran for mayor in 1994 against then Mayor Sharp James. That was like his second term. We did everything we could to make the ballot, and we did. And to me, when we made the ballot, I had already won. We had zero dollars. We were doing fish fries and all kind of things like that. We raised $10,000. That's all the money we had. And we probably didn't have that at one time. That's probably all the money we spent. Let me put it that way. We spent $10,000. But I didn't care about the odds, I was an ideologue, which is a, a kind of fancy way of saying I had a lot of ideas and, and not much of a plan. Trying to debate people about we were smarter than them and so forth and so on and going back and forth. Yes, I'm a radical. Yes, I'm revolutionary. You should be too. Of course I am. All those people say we're not revolutionary for being mayor, for running for mayor, ha. We read the art of war. That's right. Maybe you should. <laughs> I ran for mayor when I was 24, right? I thought I knew more than, than Sharp James. I thought I knew more than Ken Gibson. I was deadly wrong. And that's probably why, <laughs> why we slowed up a little bit. It's like, you know, you play a game before the championship. That game's so hard, you already think you won. Don't be afraid to be revolutionary. That's right. It's a science. I'm not afraid. 
I'm in the proper accord with the universe. You not? <laughs> I'm in proper accord. You know, I'm following the principles and the doctrine. You gotta get in step. You not in correct step. You off key. You off beat. Get on beat. That's right. I mean, more than anything, I learned that I wasn't as popular as I thought I was, right? And a lot of people didn't believe what I thought that they should believe or think that they should think. Somebody threw a brick through our, our campaign window. Oh, man, they would take the spark plugs out of our cars. You can't drive them. I mean, it was rough. And no matter what I thought about Sharp James, the people in the community obviously didn't think the same things that I thought. And they voted for him in droves. And, and we got like 3,000 votes or something like that, right? Uh, I, I thought, you know, that was something of a feat at the time. But in, in reality, you know, we got maybe a small portion of the vote. And, and, and we felt like we did so much work. I mean, we worked hard. Not probably smart, but we worked hard. You know, hard that we were tired hard. I started in 1994 running for office. I ran for mayor at 24 years old, I lost. And I lost every election after that for like 16 years. And, and I ran and ran and ran and ran. And uh, you know, I think Sharp James got tired of me running and he made me the deputy mayor. And I took that as a slight victory, you know. And then they appointed me for a short term and one of the councilmen, Councilman Tucker passed away and I, I was appointed. And I really didn't look at that as a win-win because I was appointed and we didn't win. And when it was over, when the term was over, we had to run again. And I ran again and lost. You have brothers. You have brothers. We love each other. We love each other. Is it okay if I ask you about Shani? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about Shani. You know, what she was like. And she was, Shani was the one right under you, right? Right under me, yep. She was right behind me. Yeah. Tell me about like what your relationship was like with Shani growing up. Oh, man. Shani, brother. Wow. She is a presence, right? She was on my baseball team, you know, the Little League Mets. Mother be like, you got to go to practice. Take your sister with you, that type of thing, you know. Then she come down there and play baseball better than me. <laughs> it's the type of stuff you get upset at, you know what I mean? She, we in the backyard, she playing basketball. My older brother teaching her how to play basketball. So she was like a consummate athlete, man. She knew if people say something to one of us, she want to fight them before we ready to fight. My sister was very feisty, courageous young lady, man, and, and uh, loved her family, you know, 100%, 100%. You know, she was gay. In my household, it was never an issue. So she was proud and outward. She didn't think of it as, like, even a political statement, you know? And, and she's the type of person, like, if people cared, she wouldn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care what you think. This is what I'm doing, you know? My older sister was in a relationship of domestic violence. You know, her husband at the time was beating her and pointing guns at her and all kind of stuff. And like nobody really knew about it, but my, my sister, Shani. 
Yeah, when she finally told us, I think at that point things had escalated and my other sister had put him out and it turned into like kind of a stalker kind of thing then, you know? And by that time we was looking for him. I was, my brothers were, we, my family, you know, we, we're searching for him. The police are searching for him. And Shani with her girlfriend, they went to the house, my sister's house to get her belongings, to get her things out of the house. And he was there. I know my sister, she confronted him. Like, if I know Shani, she said something to him. She confronted him. Like, what are you doing in here? Da -da 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 -da. She wasn't afraid of him or probably no one, you know? And he shot her. He shot her and he shot her girlfriend, Rayshawn. Rayshawn Holmes. He shot them both at point blank range and took the jury off of their body. He shot them right there. And um, I was home. My family was home. My, my aunt came to the house. And I could hear my mother and father downstairs screaming. And I ran downstairs trying to figure out what was going on. And I heard them. I was on top of the steps, and I heard them saying it in the living room, and I just broke down. She was not, like, um, trying to discover herself or none of that stuff. She was always who she was. People loved her. Everybody loved her. And she was the best person, you know, in our family to me. My mother had made like a shrine almost in my sister's room of pictures and all kind of stuff. And uh, one day I came to, over to the visitor and she was just sitting in there. Right? And I went in there and, and sat with her and... Uh, she just uh, started talking like, this doesn't look sad, does it? Like, it looks happy in here, right? And we just started talking about, you know, all of the things uh, about my sister, about women, about, you know, the, my family and everything. And it just, like, uh, made me think about all of the stuff that my mother went through. You know, not just for herself and for her family, but for the community, for her people, for everybody, just struggling and fighting. And there's no reward there. There's no bonus check. She didn't get any specific benefit. You know, her family was hurt by it. You know, it, it uh, a lot of things happened, you know. They could have just picked up and moved away from here, but they chose not to. I just don't think a lot of these women will ever be recognized for the work that they had to do and the things they had to endure from us and from the world who was beating on us, right? That, that, that they was trying to protect us from, by the way. All of us, the whole family, you know, at the end of the day. And uh, to lose your daughter to, like, sick act of violence like that when you're actually working hard to save those very people and they kill your, your daughter. So I chose to write, and the words came easy to me in my grief. You know, I wrote for black women. I wrote for the teacher, the mother. I wrote for Amina Baraka. I wrote for Sylvia Robinson's dreams. The first poems that I wrote were coming out so fast they didn't have titles. 
So I wrote 10 poems. It was number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, all the way to 10. And then the first poem I wrote after that that had a title was called Black Girls Learn Love Hard. I sent the poems to a friend. She read it. She was like, oh, my God. And she sent me back a book. I actually wrote it in one day. This, this is one of the poems, God Must Be a Black Woman. God must be a black woman, you know. When I was younger, every time I got on my knees, my mama showed up. Every time I got on my knees, my mama showed up. I swear every time I got on my knees, it was my mama's face that came to me in complete stillness. It was my mama that made all the miracles happen in our house. She saved lives for a living, breathed air in our lungs, raised four black boys in the world that tried to suffocate them. Hail mama, full of grace, blessed are ye amongst women. It was that preacher that lied, took her out of the trinity of things, made her a ghost and tried to make me afraid of her image. Hail mama, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our rebirth. Move the stone from the cave of our minds and resurrect us. Help us recall the taste of ebony and the black of the womb, that darkness in triple stages like kissing the midnight sky, giving birth to a miracle. She wears the color of eternity on her face, ageless but as old as time itself. She carries civilization on her back. The trees weep when she walks, the wind envies her, yet she cries oceans of tears for her children are persecuted. Hail mama, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, the world has turned its back on you. Do you know her name, your mother, your sister, your wife? I saw her at a block party on Elizabeth and Mika, she sat there and everyone that passed looked, some even spoke and if you were lucky she smiled at you. She would look your way for just a split second and you would fall in love with her high cheekbones, the music in her voice, the tone in her eyes, the curve in her lips, the way she holds her hand. She washed other people's clothes to put her kids through college. She taught other people's children and cleaned other people's homes. She tilled their soils and worked their factories. She kept our families together. She saved lives for a living. Yeah, God must be a black woman. Every time I got on my knees, my mama showed up. God must be a black woman. Who else could have done all of this anyway? Hail, holy queen, mother of mercy. Hail, our life, our sweetness, our hope. Hail, black woman, the Madonna, life giver. The world has wronged you. Did you ever have any inkling over the course of those years that your willingness to lose was going to become a competitive advantage? Never. We just went hard. We put our head down and went hard. If I lose, I'll do it again because I've done it again. And, and I think that that gave us an edge, certainly. And it wasn't until all of that, all of that losing that we figured out how to win. We would have kept running around as ideologues, trying to rabble-rouse, but then my brother Mitty came home to Newark for the summer from college. He was moonlighting in the hip-hop industry at the time, managing campaigns, running around with, with, with Puffy and all that crew, and he had a bunch of young people that was with him as well. And uh, he organized the campaign on the street level. It brought me back to the young kid on the church steps, poetry in my back pocket, just trying to figure out who I am. 
You know, I was looking for my voice on Avon Avenue and 17th Street, right? I found it at Howard University in Douglas Room 116. If I couldn't do anything else, I could rally people up. And I kind of leaned on that, you know? There's always this talk about gatekeepers, right? People are in the way of you getting this and getting that. But there are always gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are not always negative, right? You have to build relationships with folks because those people will open doors for you. It's important that you do that. Even building relationships with people that I don't naturally have, have an inclination to do that with. I go to the meeting in a pragmatic way, you know, because you're trying to get something to move. And uh, you have to figure out how to get it to move. And you might need them. I put it this way. I tell the people that I work for, God make your enemies your footstool. And footstool don't mean you step on people. Footstool mean it is, a, is an object that helps you get from one location to the next. The question is, as history has shown in newer collections, it is often the person with the best ground game who wins. And Mr. Barack is showing, even today, that he can still wage a very effective ground game. You know, I started talking to people saying, look, I'm from this neighborhood, I'm from this community, I'm you, you me, we the same person, right? But you know me from when I was a child, when I did this, and uh, you know, so forth and so on. So when I win, you win. If I'm the mayor, you the mayor. You know what I'm saying? I was like, wow, if I'm the mayor, you the mayor. When I become mayor, you become mayor, we become mayor. And that became my campaign slogan. That's really what it meant, that we're responsible for our own destiny and that we're going to make our own destiny and, and chart our own way. My, my father is 79 years old at, at the time, and, you know, he, he's, he's frail in the hospital bed, but that doesn't stop him from handing out election literature to his nurses. When I walk in, he points to me and says, this is my son, he's running for mayor. It, it made me feel good, it made me feel proud. You seem more animated. Are you getting more into this? Well, I'm catching my second win, right? <laughs> you know, we got about four or five days left in this campaign and we can't pull no punches. We gotta go hard, run across the finish line. And then on election day, The second I had an inkling that we had won, I preempted the program and started giving a speech and talking and the place was just lit up in there. Then we literally walked to City Hall with a mob of people behind us. We just walked in the middle of the street and we took City Hall steps. And you know, some, some days I wake up and still don't believe that I'm the mayor of the city. I was riding in the car the day that I was being inaugurated. And like when I got in the car and I came out the house and helicopters were over my house and the police were all lined up outside, I actually thought something was going on, but uh, they were there for me. I was in the car listening to Nina Simone on my headphones. They say everything can be replaced. I basically cried all the way to NJ Pack, not because I mean, part of it was the moment, but it was also because my dad had just died, right? He just passed away in the hospital. 
passing out literature to the people in the hospital, telling them that his son was running for mayor while he was struggling for his life. He never got the opportunity to see me win. I remember at your father's funeral, there's the flags, you know, and so down at the front is his coffin, and there's probably 3,000 people in there at a time. And when I was in the back, I couldn't really see this, but when I came down to the front, I looked up and I saw on one side of the auditorium, there was a red, black, and green African liberation flag. And on the other side of the auditorium, there was a red, white, and blue American flag. And that your father was precisely in the middle between those two flags. And I wonder if that's an apt metaphor for him, if that's an apt metaphor for your family's history and the work that you're continuing. Yeah. My father was a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party, brother. (laughs) Even though he fired on him every time he had a chance, like boom, 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 boom. And he would tell you that he was American. There was a time in his life he probably would have never said that. My father, my mother, they said, we're we're Americans. The history of this world made us American. Like the Paul Robeson statement at the House of Un-American Activities, I'm an, uh, uh, this is my country and I'm not going to let any fascist-minded people drive me from it. My father was a sharecropper, my grandfather was a slave. Like, saying that the history of this country put us here. We're here, you stuck with us, we're American. And my father believed that, right? So that, that whole American flag, the fight for democracy, and the African-American flag, or the red, black, and green flag, the fight for self-determination. And he always believed those were like two wings of the same bird, that you had to fight for democracy and equality because you're a citizen of this country and you deserve what everybody else gets. But you also should fight for self-determination, the right to define yourself, govern yourself, name yourself, uh, have your own institutions, all of these things. And he was that way to the end. He was an evolving person. Even in my eulogy that I gave, I you know, was trying to point out that uh, my father was alive. He was moving. Like, if you're the same person, he would say, if you were the same person you were 20 years ago, then you're not alive, right? You're stuck. Like, you know, no, nothing in the world stays still. Everything is in motion, right? And, and so you should, you're always in motion. You're developing. You're changing. And, and he was. I mean, Amiri Baraka of 1956 was not the Amiri Baraka of 1966 or 1976, 1986, or 2006, or when he passed away. Those were two almost completely different people in some aspects, and in some of it, the same, right? But that's what my father would always say that, like, you know, he would say, don't lose your poetry license. And I think the important part of that, it was like, keep writing, that the writing keeps you grounded and helps you understand why you're really doing this stuff. You know, read some of your old poems. Introduce yourself again to yourself at 16, 17, 18, you know. The things, the thoughts you thought at 20 years old, right? And um, how how is it relevant? And I think, it, and, and when I do that, when I do that, and when I write, 
it, it does keep me grounded. It, keep, it gives me, I, I get into a space where I begin to see the world not as somebody trying to change it or fix it, but as somebody in it. That's what the poetry does for me. Like, I, it gives me an opportunity to see the world from a perspective of just Raz Baraka. The work of national liberation is hard and its resolution is to be sought, not fantasized as a result of unprepared, spontaneous outbursts of emotionalism. It is work. It will only be achieved by disciplined, dedicated people with a value system that allows them to persevere and remain healthy and rational and committed for as long as it takes, no matter what happens to anybody or everybody else. Imamu Amiri Baraka. What would you say to your father about your time as mayor if he was still here? Uh, if my father was alive, I would talk to him about the impact that we had and are having on this city and the residents that live here. That, that we are rebuilding Newark, but with the people in mind. We had one whole year in the city where the police didn't even fire a weapon. We are finally spreading art and culture throughout the city. We, we're building more parks, creating more euros, empowering artists, creating housing for artists in our community. Newark is reliving its, its, its artistic past and the present. We have a guaranteed income that we are now paying $6,000 a year to families who need it the most. We survived the pandemic and we did so many incredible things during that time that people thought we were wiped out and we're not. We replaced every lead service line in this city. We created a space for, for women and domestic violence in, in honor of Shani, and it is becoming a staple crop of this administration. We moved money from the police department and put it in the Office of Violence Prevention. And we're creating a better police department, in fact, a police department that's now majority black and brown. These things are happening, and, and the narrative about our city is changing dramatically and quickly. We made a joke about Newark. You were heated for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. I made a note. Oh, all right, well, you can't joke with Raz about Newark. This has been an Audible Original, produced by Audible Originals, written and performed by Raz Baraka and Jelani Cobb. Executive producers, Christopher John Farley, Julie Pinheiro, and the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. Associate producers, Rachel Pilgrim and Asia Simpson. Edited by Julie Pinheiro. Sound design, mix, and master by Maxwell Smith. Original music by Stefan Harris. Acquisition and development by Louise Quayle. Vice President of Audible Studios, Mike Charzuk. Editor-in-Chief, Audible Original Publishing, David Blum. And special thanks to Emily Martinez, Chelsea Keys, John Schreiber, and Salimul Taylor. Copyright 2021 by Raz Baraka. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Audible Originals, LLC. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.